Welcome to PD Party Over, the podcast for people, teams, and organizations seeking practical ideas for results and greater happiness. I'm your host, Stephen Martini. Let's pause, learn, and move on. PD Party Over is brought to you by Align, A L Y G N, dot company. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephen, and welcome to PD Party Over. Our past experiences impact our lives, from how we interpret current events to how we view ourselves and others. Sometimes, our past experiences are responsible for the fear that keeps us trapped in a loop, despite our best efforts to move on. The guest for this episode of Pity Party Over is Nina Brassler. Nina is the Global Head of Societal Learning for Novartis, a multinational pharmaceutical corporation based in Switzerland, whose mission is to discover new ways to improve and extend people's lives. Nina believes that learning from my experiences is the medicine to overcome fear and live a life with a sense of purpose. Moving beyond fear is adopting a growth mindset that allows us to see the world and ourselves as ever-changing dynamics filled with possibilities. Please welcome to Pity Party Over, Nina Bressler. I read your essay, Do What Makes You Feel Alive. Oh! It, it, yeah, it struck a chord because my parents were born in 1929. And uh, a lot of what you wrote, you know, resonated with me because both of them went through World War II. Um, Mom was four years old when the siege of Leningrad started. She escaped with my grandma, um, who was just, uh, who's quite young. She was only 21. They were on one of the first transports to leave Leningrad because my mother's father and my grandfather was pretty high up in the army. And so there were two transports that went across. Um, I don't know how much you know about Leningrad, but when the Nazis surrounded it, um, there was it was completely under siege and there was no supplies coming in. The Soviet government, you know, Stalin wasn't really helping um, the people of Leningrad. But in the winter, when the when Lake Ladoga froze, they were able to start bringing transports across. And my mom um, tells the story that she was in one of the first transports. It was her transport and another transport, and as they were crossing the lake, um, they there were some bombings, and they saw the other transport actually go through the ice, but they were mm. able to make it across. And then um, she spent the majority of the war, first the first few years um, in Russia, and then eventually in Georgia as refugees, but with some family members. And then my father, he was also a child during the siege of Leningrad, but he spent the first winter in Leningrad. So he really had memories of people starving and he was a little bit older. He was six when the war started. When they came back to Leningrad after the war, you needed to register either as Russian or as Jewish. And so both my family, both sides of my family actually had Jewish roots. But what that meant was in the seventies, um, the Soviets opened up the borders and let people through the Iron Curtain with the intention of immigrating to Israel but many Russian Jews in the 70s went to other countries. So um, they used that opportunity to leave the Soviet Union. And then, yes, my mom ended up in Vienna then with my grandmother, who was, you know, already in her early 60s. And um, and my brother, who was 15. 
And then she found out she was pregnant with you in Vienna? Yeah. So when my mom got to Vienna, she, um, you know, they went to the Jewish refugee agency and they actually said, oh, well, you see your mother's baptized Lutheran, so you're not real Jews. So we're not going to be able to support your asylum to the U.S. And they went across the street to Caritas, which is the Catholic charities. And Caritas said, oh, you know, we um, we would love to help you. And actually, I think for my family, it was better because all of the Russian Jews that were then transported from Vienna to Rome and a lot lived there almost in ghetto conditions um, for a year or more waiting for their asylum to be sorted. But um, Caritas kept their refugees in Vienna. So my family actually had a relatively nice apartment. And my mother, um, she was 42 years old. Her stomach started to hurt. One day she went to the doctor and the doctor said, um, well, you are pregnant. So um, yeah, so when she was in Vienna, she found out she was pregnant with me. And definitely a lot of people said, oh, you know, um, you don't speak English, you're immigrating to a new country, probably not the ideal time to be having a child, but she, um, yeah, she always wanted a second child. And so I was born in Vienna and um, my father, you know, I'm very genetically very much like him. I look a lot like him. So he didn't meet me till he was able to get through the Iron Curtain when I was already um, uh, almost nine years old. My mother had to stay in Vienna until I was born. That's what Caritas asked her to do. And then we came to the United States when I was four months old. And, you know, there were a lot of other refugees in the U.S. and friends from Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. And they, um, yeah, they would take pictures and some, send them to my dad and things like that. So he saw pictures of me. But, you know, even then, it wasn't like today. You didn't have Skype or other, you know, video calling services. But even letters um, always were opened by the KGB and read. And there were a lot of problems to even just communicate um, with people on the other side of the Iron Curtain. There's one thing in your essay that resonated with me. I'm going to read it. And then if you don't mind, maybe sharing some thoughts. You say, the story that I was born into was one of luck. And with that came an unspoken sense of duty. The sense of duty one feels to the legacy of the family can be both an enabler and a hindrance. Yeah. So, you know, um, growing up, my mother shared the story of her childhood a lot. And her childhood was not a nice one. It was in the middle of war. And now that I have a daughter, I think about that a lot. Because, um, you know, as your child grows up, a lot of times you want to process your own traumas. Or you start to process your own traumas as your child goes through that same period of their life. And probably a lot of my mother's storytelling was just trying to process what she had been through. Because she could relate it to how my life was so different. And so she would um, all highlight quite often about how lucky I was. And I think it was common to hear that anyhow from immigrants. You know, we gave up so much. We left our homeland and we came to this country to give you opportunity. So you have that sense of duty that you need to achieve something in order to live out their dreams in some way. But of course, it also puts on a lot of pressure, especially in people who maybe you're already, you know, looking to please and things like that. So it's an interesting psychological dynamic that plays out over time. I believe it is such a, 
an important point of, in the developmental maturity of any person. Some people are able to overcome this this friction and some people get stuck in it. At the time, really wanted to be very American, right? And um, so there was this like age divide because my parents were much older when they had me. Then there was the cultural divide. And so I definitely felt like an outsider in the family, but also felt like an outsider in most other situations. Um, but I got quite good at kind of becoming a chameleon. I would say so. I actually didn't live with my parents from the age of 14. Um, I lived with my brother for some time. And then I lived in a roommate situation when I was still finishing high school. And I got really involved in like several subcultures. So um, I got really into horses. And this was almost like my um, doorway to um, being really American because I like celebrated all the American holidays or the Catholic holidays, rather. And then also, um, I got really involved in the Boston music scene. That also, you know, that subculture, and there's many subcultures within that. But um, I was always able to be quite eclectic in my, like, tastes, but then also fit in in almost any scene that I got involved in. So I enjoyed, it was always this balance where I enjoyed um, observing <laughs> what was happening in a culture a little bit from the outside, but also taste testing it a little bit, if that makes sense. And I think that those kind of patterns still continue today for me. My parents, I did a lot of work, I think, on understanding their relationship with each other, understanding my relationship with them. And I do feel that um, it's been an ama a wonderful perspective to understand what I take from them, but also to consciously be able to say this, these are things that I've chosen not to take from them because these are patterns that have been passed down generation to generation sometimes, or just because of the you know culture and the society that don't serve me. And so I can also make the choice to not take them. That's sometimes harder <laughs> to do than it actually is to say, but you know, if you work on it, you can achieve it. When I was 16, my father was diagnosed with cancer. And so for many, many years, I lived this really anxiety that I didn't have that much time. We loved each other, but somehow we really, there was a lot of friction. There were a lot of stuff that I needed to work out with him. But at some point, I remember that, I don't know how that happened, but there was this thought in my head, which was, listen, if you just simply stay in this space, uh, is going to be a nightmare for the rest of your life, especially when it would not be around. So you really have to let it go. And somehow I started looking at him from a different perspective, which is really the perspective that I have now, which is I truly believe he did his best with what he had. So the question for you is, is there anything that you did that helped you make the switch, that put you in a position of actually understanding what you could take from your family and what you could leave behind? I think probably one of the main triggers was when my daughter was born. So before um, I gave birth to my daughter, I definitely had like underlying anxieties or issues that I knew existed, but I didn't spend time on them. And then after she was born, um, I started to really kind of see the world a little bit differently and really think about, okay, what is the, what is the kind of parent that I want to be? 
And how do I want to show up for her? How do I want to show up in my relationships? And that led me to start doing some work. So actually, you know, going and seeing a therapist and um, digging into some more of my family background, because that's where you start. It's like doing a, a master's thesis on yourself, right? <laughs> these are some really interesting patterns. I don't know that I would make these same choices for my daughter. I'm not saying I would have changed anything. But for years, um, yeah, I realized that, oh, wow, I was really hurt and angry because of choices that were made that were actually nobody's fault. They were trying to do their best. The catalyst was that I didn't want to live with that anger. So I needed to kind of find a way to work through it. And neither of my parents are able to really um, hear my experience without feeling defensive or um, not enough. Processing it with them directly hasn't worked for me. Actually going and doing the work to understand where they were coming from, how really horrible traumas impacted their behavior for life, being empathetic to that, and then also being compassionate to myself. That resulted in behaviors that hurt me too, makes it possible to kind of forgive everybody and be compassionate to everybody, but also to not be judgmental about my anger, let's say, because for years I was like, oh, I shouldn't feel like that about my parents. And, you know, the anger that just comes out sometimes because you're not in touch with it by being able to be somewhat compassionate that you do have some um, strong feelings about it. Um, you're, I think, much, it's much more effective in terms of transforming it than um, feeling shame about it. Your story has shaped your purpose, your motto, which you sum up in it, do what makes you feel alive. I always find interesting people, but um, throughout all these years of my career, I've seen very few happy people. Interestingly enough, and when we work together, oftentimes people have this question, which is, is this really the life I was supposed to have? And inevitably comes up an element of fear that may have prevented them from taking the steps to be really let's say, align with who they are, what was important to them, what would you say that could be a first step to, to find that, that the voice that makes you feel alive? The first thing is you need to just reframe the way that you see your work. So I think for me, I really never pursued a position. So it wasn't a job title, or at least the idea of pursuing a job title, um, I kicked out quite early. That I pursued experiences and growth so, um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I did so many different jobs. Like I worked as a bike messenger. I worked as a waitress in a bar. Um, I worked as a veterinary technician. Um, I worked as an English teacher. Um, and when I moved to Prague and others and all of those experiences, I got such valuable um, skills from and tools that I took to the next one. My advice is to shift your perspective and think about instead of building yourself towards a position, you should look at building yourself in terms of skill set, tool set, and mindset. And then the position is just what you do at that moment in time. Learning is a form of medicine. That's brilliant. Yeah, so that came um, in the past 18 months. I studied art, first of all, and then I did a degree in communications didn't study adult development. And um, I'm just so lucky that I ended up this role 
first um, working on some learning technologies and then owning the skills taxonomy at Novartis as the competency leader, and then um, helping to drive the curiosity pillar of the, um, of the culture transformation. And out of that, I saw that we built up all these technologies and tools and had these amazing resources that were focused internally for um, this company, for Novartis, which is a med medicines company, right? And um, I thought, wow, there's so many people who would benefit from these same tools externally. And how um, can, you know, that feels like the right thing to do. It's not enough just to scale these within this organization of 100,000. How can I take them beyond the boundaries of the company? And with that, we started to think um, in the past 18 months about what this agenda for societal learning looks like. And yeah, this um, learning is a form of medicine is really the overarching, let's say, vision for that. We as a medicines company, of course, we are bringing um, medicines to patients, but learning is a form of medicine as well because it um, helps create space for dialogue. It helps to mobilize systems. Learning as a platform is much more powerful as a communications tool because it gives you a space to really understand and dialogue with and include many different voices in your understanding in a way that let's say a one-way communication platform can't do. It sounds, I'm thinking out loud, a beautiful alternative to just straight marketing, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely. So being a little bit of an outsider to learning, I really felt like the journey of the learning function over the past few years was very similar to the marketing function. You know, we were really looking at how to put metadata behind content, how to get the right content to the right people, the amount of content grew. So it was following very much the same trajectory as digital marketing. Only the um, impact measures for digital marketing are clear. It's consumption, it's click-throughs, it's things like that. For learning um, as a society or as a, are, as let's say as an industry, we haven't solved for impact measurement in learning sufficiently because the impact measurement of learning is desired behavior change. And we don't have really scalable ways to measure that yet. So I'm also really interested in that. And part of my work on societal learning is also looking at how um, learning can be used to make impact on individuals who then drive outcomes in alignment with, let's say, broader goals like the UN Sustainable Development Goals and how we can really measure that all the way through to show what the impact of investment in learning really um, can do. And so we're running some control studies around that already this year with um, some behavioral scientists and the Harvard Reskilling Lab, because I'm so curious to see where that, that kind of thinking and work can go. Before talking to you today, I was watching on Netflix, uh, Megan and Harry. Oh yeah, I just watched it too. I did? So at some point he says that misinformation is a humanitarian crisis, 
which I thought, oh my God, this is so brilliant. It is true in a sense that uh, we are so hyper-connected. There's so much information out there. But the one thing that so many people struggle with is what is real, what it's not, what is accurate information, what it's not accurate information. If I look at the quality of deep fakes and everything else, like the ability, even, um, even if you take a lens of criticality, the ability to really um, decipher if something is real or fake is, um, or if you're being influenced by an echo chamber that you're already in, it's getting harder and harder to do. I mean, everything we hear um, around our, us is curated to align with our perspectives, right? As an American who experienced the influence of, let's say, Fox News propaganda, on the American populace and now um, is really as and somebody who understands Russian and is experiencing the influence of Russian state media on the mindsets of Russians. Um, I just think we are so, as a species, we are so easy to influence. I mean, ultimately we're social creatures. We want to trust and believe what we hear and we become, um, easily convinced of what we hear as being the only truth. And I think that something that I think is really interesting is that at this time of actually quite um, a lot of instability in the world and great change, we as humans are looking for security, right? We can find that security in many different ways. Probably the healthiest way is through inner development. So we get grounded in our inner values. However, um, not a lot of people have those tools or opportunities available to them. So they um, look for other frameworks to ground themselves in for that security and stability. And a lot of times those frameworks are um, extreme in terms of politics or religious affiliations. And, when, and they become quite polarized against each other. And then um, once that polarization starts, it evolves into more extreme and extreme polarization as they push against each other. Come on, we could probably are gonna say, of course the answer to everything is inner development, but I do think the answer to everything is awareness and inner development, right? So, You wrote in your beautiful essay, people are provoked when he pokes at their fears. A person has to push through the edge of the fear to find the light. Yes, it is in a development, but it is that relationship with fear that I believe it is such a, an essential point and how you deal with it. So do you wonder how I deal with it or how I think people should deal with it? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I became really interested in kind of what fear feels like in my body because I realized that a lot of times I'm, I'm acting from fear still. And I want to know the difference. Um, I want to know when decisions are coming from, you know, a place of security and confidence and not overconfidence, but a healthy place or when they're coming from a place of fear. So I think for me, um, the work really started by spending time feeling how different emotions come through my body by practicing that and practicing meditation really um, just being able to recognize when something is fear-driven, but step out of it before I take the action um, that is fear-based. So I think it's that same knowing that I'm quite action-oriented. And for me, fear, it doesn't drive an anger response in me. It drives an action response. 
And sometimes those actions just need a little bit more time. And it can also be good. I can, my intuition can kick in. I can do the right action. But um, it's just asking myself for a split second, is this something that needs a little bit of stillness? What is the wise thing to do here? Because wisdom is not driven by fear, right? Wisdom is knowing um, whether to go with the intuition or go with take some time and just create space and stillness. So yeah, that's, I would say, how I try to practice not being ruled by fear. When the war in Ukraine started, I could feel um, so many thoughts and decisions being completely fear-driven, and it still peaks at certain times for me. I mean, I live in Czech Republic, so we have a huge refugee crisis, and, and we're pretty close to Ukraine, so you're obviously aware Plus, there's the trauma that this country went through with um, the Soviet occupation, et cetera. So the topic of people kind of being triggered into fearful states is definitely in front of mind for me all the time. And I think fear is useful, too. When you need it, it's just a question of asking yourself, is it useful to me in this moment? And being able to catch yourself before you make decisions that are fear-driven unnecessarily. Not that I'm trying to minimize the humongous problems that we have, but I do have faith that we can learn as humans, you know, we can flip things around. I really believe we can do that for sure. And somehow, oftentimes the way to learn difficult stuff is to go through pressure and pain. That's what I often see. Yeah. Well, coming back to the Harry and Meghan documentary, though. Yeah. Actually, I think that um, there is a lot of really amazing integration and work happening under the surface in our societies, it's just that what is shown in the media is a totally different story. And it's so similar to their um, experience, right? The media created um, such a fear mindset for them and and it was legitimate. I'm not saying it wasn't, um, but based on kind of this story that they created, but we do that same thing for ourselves individually. We take all of the stories that are out there and then we weave together a narrative that it feels really threatening for us and it feels just as threatening as a war. So, and then the way that people act in it is, yeah, can be really extreme. I think that it's necessary to appreciate that even, yeah, I think the practice of awareness and then integration of fears is just something we have to continually do and help others do through compassion and empathy even um, just that they can behave in ways that are more constructive to the society as a whole. And that means giving them security, also socioeconomically, social safety nets, and that people have opportunities to work and learn and grow. Because ultimately, I don't know, I'm of the belief that ultimately people want those, want to apply their talents to something that feels purposeful. And that's yeah part of the work that I'm doing around societal learning now is also creating new career paths, in, in my case, into healthcare for people who haven't worked in healthcare before at scale around the world, working with an, um, a really leading educational partner on that from the learning and development industry, partnering with our company, with Novartis. The idea behind that, this impact framework I was talking about before, I needed to really let's say, confirm my hypothesis, but the hypothesis is that if you give people these opportunities 
to grow into stable careers that are needed. We have huge skill gaps that you can actually really influence socioeconomic conditions, which have really positive impact also on the kind of stability of the country from a political and yeah, socioeconomic perspective. I would like to ask you about Nina, the entrepreneur, Nina landscape, how that idea came about. Oh yeah. So this is just a new project I've just started this year, but um, I, in my own development work, I actually found words are really restrictive for me. Like it's hard for me to describe. And for me, um, visuals or music or colors were a much better association to certain feelings. It made me think as we ultimately, what is growth? It's identifying that you have certain patterns and then having a growth mindset, meaning is believing that those patterns aren't static, that they're dynamic and they can change. And actually they're very fluid. They change all the time. Words feel too finite and too slow in some way. And colors or art or images or even music, I think are much more fluid. Two years ago, I started to think about, oh, how could we take the verbal representation of somebody's patterns, let's say, for example, their big assumptions about how the world works, and translate those into art. But at the time, there wasn't an AI art generation tool that was able to handle that much language yet. Actually, now, this year in 2022, there's some amazing neural networks that have come onto the landscape that can take huge blocks of text and visualize them. I would like to eventually develop a app or some tool that gives allows you to do this visualization at scale. For me, like I said, visual and auditory are the ones that help me get into seeing that dynamic way in which we um, can look at our inner landscape. But for other people, it's a journey. Not sure where it's going to go. Before I started Novartis, I worked for myself as an entrepreneur for a few years. At the time, developed a product that um, I would say was a visualizer of competency and skill frameworks. So um, the timing was a little bit too late for the big tech. And I had a nice um, sales channel planned with a world, a global HR consultancy. And it was about to start kind of going to be pushed out through a lot of their um, human capital consulting practice. And then they got um, acquired by an even larger global consultancy. So I ended up going back to the corporate world. But this, um, yeah, this inner landscape project is a way for me to enjoy being creative and bringing my other interests together with human development. But I also feel that in my societal learning role at Novartis right now, I'm also very entrepreneurial. So it's almost like a startup running within the boundaries of an organization. And I feel really lucky to have that opportunity because um, I'm taking on some project that um, I think can make the most impact, measuring that impact, and then looking for the next one. So it's that same startup mindset. If you think about all the things that we cover, what would you say, what do you sense to be the center point of our conversation? I would say it's moving beyond fear and um, being able to really live a growth mindset to ask the right questions of yourself and of your contacts to see that um, the world is dynamic and you can be dynamic too. You are fabulous. 
You're fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. You are fabulous, and you come from a fabulous family. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of PD Party Over. If you have any questions about the content of this episode, you can contact me via email or LinkedIn. Please check the episode's notes for information. If you enjoy this content, please subscribe to the PD Party Over podcast, available on Amazon Music, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, and many podcast platforms and apps. I invite you to browse our leadership and managerial development programs at align.company. Align is spelled A-L-Y-G-N dot company. Be happy, be well, and until we connect again, thank you for listening.